Hello listeners, welcome to the second episode of season 1 of Itihasa, an Indic history podcast, and you're listening to Narendra Vikram. As you know, season 1 is all about Vijayanagara Empire. In today's episode, we will explore the prevailing narratives, reasons behind Vijayanagara's decisive route in the epic battle of Tallikota. By the end of it, we will try to answer some crucial questions uh, like where did Ramaraya go wrong? What did the Deccan Sultanate alliance do right? What role did the technology of the day play in the end result? Or was it sheer luck that the alliance won on that fateful day? Before we start, a quick recap of the previous episode. The previous episode ends with the regent of Vijayanagara Empire, Aliya Ramaraya's head being chopped off in the Nizam Shah camp after being injured and caught on the field by Sultan's forces. The capture of Ramaraya leads to a total panic in the ranks of Vijayanagara army, leading to an eventual rout on the plains of Raka Sitangadi, or also referred to as Tallikota. This decisive rout of Vijayanagara forces lays the imperial capital Hampi wide open to the forces of sultans, and ultimately most of the city is razed to the ground over a period of six months. Those who haven't heard the previous episode, I would highly recommend checking it out for a detailed backstory, how the battle unfolded on that fateful day, and then come back to this episode to actually enjoy it even better. So let's begin this episode with an excerpt on this battle from N.J. Palan's book, The History of India. Quote, In the preliminary engagement, the Hindus were successful. Hence, the Muslims resorted to stratagem of conspiracy by which they were able to make two Muslim generals of Vijayanagara army to defect against their king. These traitors caused chaos and confusion in the army. The aged Ramaraya, who was directing the campaign from a litter, fell into the hands of Hussein Nizam Shah, who decapitated him with his own hand and raised his head on a spear for the Hindus to see. End of quote. The event being described in the excerpt is indeed an aspect of this battle that was reported by both European and Hindu historical sources, based on then contemporary reports. It's worth pointing out the fact that one of the Persian contemporary sources and Bijapuri court historian Muhammad Qasim Farishta has undocumented this event in his commissioned work, Tariqe Farishta. Now, this might mean two things. Either the described event didn't happen or Farishta has deliberately omitted this crucial detail from his work. And Farishta's credibility as such has been questioned by many of the modern researchers in the past. With that context, now it wouldn't be too hard to figure out why Farishta might have left out this detail, a crucial detail though, from his commissioned historical work. Uh, which he supposedly uh, wrote 38 years after the battle. In my opinion, he mostly was trying to please his Sultan, Ibrahim Shah, who hired him to write this hagiography uh, and who might have actually preferred a version of the battle uh, in which his forces or his alliance fought clean and fair without the help of any traitors within Vijayanagara ranks. So that is something to keep in mind. This act of treachery 
though tends to be one of the highlight events of the battle for uh, folks on the right side of the political spectrum who want to showcase it as the evidence for the uh, the glaring hindu muslim fault lines and for the left side of the aisle farishta's omission ends up being the smoking gun evidence on the fantastical concoction of the overzealous right that wants to fit this confrontation at Thalikota in the straitjacket of Hindu-Muslim binary. It's worth pointing out that both are right in their own perspectives to an extent. There is indeed an element of truth to what folks on both the sides are saying. There is no running away from the fact that there were fissures and fault lines between Hindus and Muslims of that age just like today. and it's also a fact that the battle of talikota or the war between vijayanagara and the deccan sultanates wasn't entirely around the religious fault lines or religion per se that was not always the case there's more nuance as such to this war and this battle which we will delve into it now so now that you know the narratives or the prevailing narratives around this battle and its relevance to our own contemporary times let's dig a bit into the battle itself and explore what actually ha- happened and why vijayanagara's forces might have ended up getting routed so the question of treachery as such within the ranks is a foregone conclusion and uh, this is uh, an event that is widely accepted by multiple sources historical sources but though in my opinion the question to ask is how much role did it actually play in influencing the outcome of the battle what other factors were in play that might have turned the outcome in the alliance's favor the answers for those line our understanding of the composition of both the forces from a technological or a military standpoint while most of the prevailing narratives would have us believe that it was mostly an equal battle uh, between both the sides or even some would have us believe that vijayanagara army all along had the upper hand until beaten due to treachery uh, all of these guesses narratives do fall short of doing the much needed technical analysis of the military makeup using a well known concept of rma and efficiency rma means revolution in military affairs this is a concept which even modern day militaries and armies actually use to assess the efficiency of their battle formation their their tactics their weapons and you know uh, so forth and so on so looking at this battle per se using the lens of rma might help us actually calmly analyze the plausible or candidate reasons for the outcome of this battle uh, without being overly dependent on various accounts or different versions of it it's important to understand that most of the times battles are undocumented definitively for various reasons especially medieval battles uh, many times the accounts of battles are written a few decades after the actual event the problems with delayed rendition is very much obvious 
many a times court historians of the winning side tend to omit or candy floss a lot of details of a particular battle or a particular war leading to muddling of waters and uh, historical contamination so sometimes we are though lucky to have multiple uh, sources or independent sources repeating some aspects of the uh, battle or some particular events during the battle or uh, so, you know some of the uh, tactical aspects of the battle um, that tends to give us some good confidence uh, of the reported or the documented uh, uh, record so though that's not to say that they could not be repeating some second hand information that certainly is a plausibility so in case of tallikota 2 we have some issues like this but there are many aspects that have been corroborated or corrected over time by many independent researchers and overlapping these established uh, facts with the rma concept we can safely uh, either confirm or refute some of the reasons for an outcome uh, while there are scholarly works around the warfare and technological arms race in medieval india these aren't normally used to fill in the gaps of our understanding uh, about this battle per se uh, and in the process you know uh, probably uh, improving the prevailing narratives uh, i i think that it might be it might be due to uh, not holistically integrating various disciplines of historical research that that is my educated guess so coming coming to the um, technical analysis or the uh, you know the technological arms race or you know the uh, the state of warfare in medieval india so there is one work a uh, scholarly work by uh, a scholar historical researcher called kaushik roy uh who in his uh, book warfare in pre-british india f- from 1500 bc to 1740 ad so thanks to this fantastic work by kaushik roy we can actually get a really a uh, good sense of uh, what the state of uh, the weaponry uh, the army on the both sides uh in this battle were actually the vijayanagara cavalry equipped with a sword and short spear were actually mounted on inferior country bred ponies in contrast the four deccan sultanate's cavalry was mounted on finest of the arab horses and most of the deccan cavalry was equipped with much longer 16 feet spears some of this cavalry is also known to have carried javelins for killing the mahouts of vijayanagara's uh, war elephants this would have given a significant advantage to their uh, cavalry further the deccan alliance had a select mercenary corps of persian troopers on horse and central asian armored horse archers the horse archers had composite bows versus the bamboo bows of the vijayanagara infantry needless to say the armored horse archers of deccan sultans had much effective firepower when it came to the range and penetration advantage given by the composite bow this was a significant technological advantage to the deccan side which really cannot be ignored especially the armored horse archers were a 
newer innovation that was actually imported from Central Asia. Turks and Mongols were known to be the experts at this skill. Uh, think of this as a technology or an innovation that required really high skill to operate. Uh, in the famous uh, Battle of Panipat, which we are taught in our history books in our schools, Babur had employed uh, similar horse archers on his flanks to defeat Ibrahim Lodi, uh, which sounded a death knell for the Lodi Sultanate in North India. So that effective were the, uh, the horse archers. So Vijayanagara had a large contingent of Muslim cavalry under six Muslim officers. They're known as Rohilas from Rohilkand in North India. Suppose these officers, two of them especially, had previously deserted the Deccan Sultans due to some differences. These officers were welcomed with generous arms and inducted into the Vijayanagara army by the Ramaraya. If you remember from the previous episode, two of these officers with their own smaller contingents had switched sides and attacked their own forces from rear during the pitch battle. Vijayanagara had deployed 2300 heavy cannons and handheld firearms. In the heavy artillery aspect, Vijayanagara forces had an upper hand over its opposition from a quantitative perspective. And its artillery division was manned by Portuguese mercenaries. Some of these mercenaries or gunners were known as mestizos. Mestizos are offsprings of Portuguese men and Indian women. However, it's important to note that Vijayanagara lacked light and mobile field artillery unlike the Deccan forces. This was a massive disadvantage for the Vijayanagara forces and their numbers advantage could have been effectively blunted by much flexible and mobile Deccan artillery equipment on the field. The other innovation that was embraced by the Deccan Sultanate's artillery division was the usage of grape shot in not just their mobile field artillery but also in their heavy artillery and cannons during the battle. This, this was an improvisation which they did on the field. Uh, without a doubt though, the Deccan Sultanate's artillery divisions were far more skilled and experienced in comparison with the Vijayanagara artillery divisions that were manned by the Portuguese. So the Sultan's uh, artillery divisions were as such, were manned by Turkish uh, gunners and their cannons were made by Turkish uh, ca cannon makers who were known to be the best in the world. It's been uh, recorded that Muhammad bin Hussein Rumi, the master cannon maker from Turkey, had personally designed and led the efforts to cast the now famous uh, super cannon that's supposedly displayed in the fort of Bijapur in Karnataka. The prestigious Rumi lineage of artillery gunners and experts were also hired by uh, these Deccan sultans during this period. So this uh, particular cannon uh, which we're talking about, it was a 55 ton uh, 5 metal alloy super cannon which was actually used with the devastating effect in the Battle of Tallikota. It is one of the largest medieval cannons in the world and after the Sultanate's victory or the Alliance's victory on the plains of Tallikota, the Sultan of Bijapur had rechristened it as Malike Maidan 
or also known or also called as lord of the plains this uh, cannon was supposedly designed to lob cannonballs that weigh around 200 kgs and it said the plumes of blinding dust accompanied when one of its uh, uh cannonballs landed in the field it's really not difficult to imagine the amount of damage such a cannon could do to flesh and bones that were concentrated at one place or to the fort walls though as per sources it is said that in this particular battle this cannon was primarily used with an improvisation which enabled it to fire massive grape shots which were made up of thousands of copper coins so you could imagine volleys of these grape shots being fired into a mass of enemy infantry uh here in this case the vijayanagara infantry so the thousands of copper coins would have acted as dangerous shrapnels racing through the air which would have if not thousands at least hundreds of soldiers in every discharge so to summarize the deccan sultan or the alliance forces were far ahead qualitatively versus the vijayanagara side and the quantitative advantage of vijayanagara army which it always had an upper hand in and about which it was used to be arrogant was effectively countered by this particular qualitative advantage and this in my opinion is what actually led to vijayanagara's rout in tallikota to the keen ear and eye it would be clear that both sides had actually embraced the gunpowder technologies of that age in some form or the other either in the form of heavy cannons field artillery pieces handheld firearms or mortars or modified uh, cannons but this is where the similarity ends as the forces of deccan's sultans were far more efficient and flexible in their choice of weapons tactics and uh, improvisations on the field or their battle formations so there are couple of main reasons for this inefficiency and qualitative inferiority from a vijayanagara military standpoint one was the political decentralization of vijayanagara's political structure that actually deprived it from having a framework for rapid and systematic implementation of reforms uh military reforms or technological reforms you know throughout its armed forces this i think played a crucial role in the outcome of the battle the second reason was vijayanagara army's past successes on the field against the divided uh forces of sultans who were actually allied and fighting together now uh, kind of fooled it into sort of overconfidence which didn't allow ramaraya to objectively analyze his forces readiness or the tactics on that fateful day finally putting all these together we get a better composite picture of what might have actually happened on the battlefield on that day on a higher level so in cavalry to cavalry confrontations between both sides the deccan cavalry 
and their horse archers would have had a significant upper hand over Vijayanagar's light cavalry that was ill-equipped. Also the 16 feet spears of the Deccan cavalry would have had the range advantage against the Vijayanagara cavalry. And the armored horse archers would have mostly supported the main cavalry of the Deccan side uh, with hit and run tactics against not just the Vijayanagara cavalry but also its infantry. This would have been really uh, devastating too. The route of both Venkatadri and Tirumala's cavalry divisions indicate that they were mostly outmatched on the qualitative front in spite of being quantitatively superior. Then we have the deployment of mobile field artillery and cannons with grape shot in the Sultan's armies, uh, which would have caused significant uh, damage in the mass ranks of approaching Vijayanagara infantry. Waves of them would have been mowed down by them. This would explain why multiple surges by the Vijayanagara forces that seemed almost successful were pushed back. Only mass casualties would have slowed them down, leading to a retreat. The two out of six Muslim cavalry commanders who switched sides captured some of the artillery positions and attacked the rear of Ramaraya's division. This is this we already know. This certainly did cause significant chaos and confusion in Vijayanagara ranks, at least temporarily. Though it's not clear if they directly were the cause for Ramaraya's capture, as it's not recorded definitively on who exactly brought down Ramaraya from his elephant. Was it the rogue commander's artillery shell or the opponent Nizam Shah's artillery shell? Irrespective of this mystery, it might be safe to say that Vijayanagara army was on the weaker footing overall. Uh, so the outcome of the battle as such uh, would mostly have been on the similar lines in the end. The only thing that probably might have been avoided was the capture of Ramaraya who might have lived to fight another day and rewriting the history altogether. So the other problem was the lack of coherent fallback, regroup and defensive strategy on Vijayanagara side which clearly led to a disastrous route and also the fall of Humpy. And Ramaraya's bravado in exposing himself to outright danger in the middle of the battlefield, even when things were getting really dangerous, was extremely responsible and in a way indicates how his judgment was clouded his inability to look at the big picture or listen to repeated pleas of his generals to pull back to safety uh, is what ultimately led to him being captured and beheaded, finally leading to a collapse of the will to fight in Vijayanagara ranks who took flight and thousands cut down by enemy forces with their dead bodies littering a 20km radius uh, around Talikota. And then finally, Tirumala Raya's failure to regroup his remaining forces and put up a defense of the city. We, we don't definitely know the reasons for fully abandoning the city and its people to the mercy of antisocial elements and the approaching Sultan's armies. Maybe Tirumala thought the Sultan's armies would rush 
to the capital immediately after the uh, successful win at Talikota but this was not the case sultan's armies took 3 days to come to hampi um which was certainly um, not quicker than what thirumala had anticipated so like we have seen so far the battle of talikota and its disastrous outcome were far from being solely anchored on the treachery in its ranks like it's usually made out to be this reminds me of sun tzu's quote from art of war every battle is won or lost even before it's ever fought vijayanagara had lost this battle even before the first shot was fired on the plains of talikota it was lost the moment ramaraya blundered on the diplomatic front the result of this blunder on diplomatic front was the formation of the grand alliance by the deccan sultans that finally ended uh, up with the uh, debacle at talikota for vijayanagara ramaraya and his policies had successfully turned something that was an arch rivalry between the five deccan sultans into an opportunistic alliance that was ultimately founded for achieving the sole goal of humiliating ramaraya and weakening vijayanagara and by the end of 23rd of january 1565 all the dreams of the alliance had finally come true with this we end the second episode of this season and in the next episode we will explore and dig deeper into the causes for ramaraya's diplomatic failure leading to talikota we will also explore aspects of his personality that had an impact on shaping of vijayanagara's geopolitical strategy or lack of one if you like this episode please do hit the subscribe button and if you can do leave a rating and review please do feel free to leave your suggestions criticisms or any ideas in the reviews once again thank you for listening itihasa the indic history podcast this is your host narendra vikram signing off till the next episode